aloha and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. My name is Michael Benner and as I promised in this week's newsletter, we're going to talk about a very old and esoteric concept in mysticism, particularly from the field known as Rosicrucianism, uh, rather uh, Christian mysticism. Uh, you may have read Da Vinci Code uh, or Angels and Demons and you know something, or maybe you've read Holy Blood, Holy Grail and know something about Christian mysticism and uh, how the church has attempted, first the Catholic Church and then even the Protestants after the Reformation, to knock down uh, mysticism largely because it's a relationship that an individual human has with his or her source. The very idea of mysticism is to stand outside the church and to have a personal relationship with the source of your divinity, with your your creator. And this is done essentially in three ways, through study, which would be attending seminars or webinars like this and and reading books, meditation, a practice we try and include in each one of these programs, or contemplation, if you will. And thirdly, mindfulness, which you attempt to carry with you throughout the day, as if you were meditating, a detached awareness of things as they are without judgment, much less a need for approval or control. And um, so, again, you may have heard through these books the nonfiction, which would be Holy Blood, Holy Grail, or the fictional accounts like Da Vinci Code or the new one Dan Brown did called Angels and Demons. You may have heard of the Priory of Sion or Knights Templar, um, the Rosicrucians, or, of course, the Freemasons. It's all a little confusing, and I'm not going to dwell on it today because it would take us too far afield and, and off-topic. But essentially, if you could think of like the, the threads that twisted together make a piece of twine, and then the pieces of twine that uh, twisted together make up a rope, that's sort of what we have here in Christian mysticism. It goes. It dates itself all the way back to um, a time before Moses, to Hermetic or Egyptian philosophy, ancient Egyptian philosophy, and uh, the Freemasons tell their stories of Hiram Abiff and and Solomon's Temple, and out of that really comes the Priory of Sion, and then in the Crusade era, the ninth and tenth and eleventh century. The, uh, the Knights Templar. Well, at the heart of all of these traditions is the Rosicrucians, which emerge about the time of the Renaissance in the 15th century, about the time of the Enlightenment in Europe, and a time when the Freemasons went from a, uh, a stone crafter's guild or a guild of, of builders to really a gentleman's club, a very sophisticated and well-educated aristocrats in Europe. And this is a major shift and change that happened. And what I'm going to describe to you really comes from the inner Rosicrucian teachings that have been veiled even while let me say it this way. While Freemasonry has been the public organization that anybody could join within Freemasonry and also outside of it, but at the core of it is the really, truly secret Rosicrucian tradition. And today's uh, theme or topic comes from that, and it's entitled The Dweller on the Threshold. That's our topic for the day today. The Rosicrucian teaching, the dweller on the threshold. 
Now, the first time we can locate this actual phrase is in 1825 in a novel, and yet the occultist that wrote this novel by using this phrase, dweller on the threshold and bringing it forward, either he coined the phrase or he brought it forward and made it so that others could use it. And since then, none other than the mystic H.P. Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, uh, who founded Theosophy in 1875 in New York, one of her mentees, Alice Bailey, uh, but also Rudolf Steiner that came out of Theosophy, and um, uh, Eliphas Levy and Dion Fortune, all these people, occultists, if you will, mystics, esoteric philosophers, have talked about this phrase, the dweller on the threshold, and hinted at its inevitable encounter with the angel of the presence. And I'd like to tell you the story today because it's a rich concept for pondering, for you to use to reflect on your own spiritual growth. And that's why I'm offering it today. There are, of course, many other traditions. We can't talk about them all simultaneously, but week after week we'll touch on various traditions in shamanism or in the Eastern philosophies of Hinduism and yoga, um, the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, uh, Buddhism, of course, and Taoism, uh, also Middle Eastern traditions from Zoroastrianism to course Islam by the 5th century AD and uh, the Sufi tradition in Islam in the Jewish religion the Hebrew tradition we have mystics as well the Kabbalists and, and others and so there's so much here that all we can do is touch on one part of one particular tradition every week so this is going to be a little bit of Christian mysticism if you will although if you're pretty well grounded in some of the other mystical traditions, uh, I think you'll feel some connection and a sense of what is portrayed here in the evolution of human consciousness. Again, in Rosicrucianism or Christian mysticism, I was going to say theosophy, I guess that's fair to say as well, one of the major threads of Christian mysticism we have the idea of various stages or phases of the development of human consciousness. And one of the models that's used in theosophy and borrowed from the Rosicrucians is the idea that there are basically five stages to the development of human consciousness. And that interestingly, they correspond to five distinct passages, if you will, in the life of Jesus the Christ. Um, the first is birth. The second is baptism. The third is transfiguration, sometimes called illumination. Uh, this is the one we're going to talk about today, the third initiation, which corresponds to that point in the Garden of Gethsemane where the disciples observe Christ as a being of light. Um, not unlike, uh, if, you're, if you remember the old movie Cocoon, when the aliens took off their bodies and went for that refreshing dip in their special swimming pool, uh, once they dropped those earth suits, they were beings of light. And by all accounts, this was Christ preparing uh, for what he knew would be the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection, and, and the ascension um, later the next day. So he appears in the middle of the night in the garden as this being of light. And that would be the illumination or the transfiguration of the individual. Remember, Christ always stood one leg in both worlds. 
He was referred to at the time and ever since as not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man, meaning that he was soul aware. He knew himself as a soul, as a solar being, okay, S-O-U-L-A-R, solar being, all right, but also as a human being and stood a leg in both worlds. And in that way, really represents this stage or a series of stages that all of us, it's argued, will go through in our lifetime, or if not in this lifetime, throughout a series of lifetimes. It's said that when we reincarnate, that we have to recapitulate everything that we've learned in previous lifetimes. In other words, we learn it again, it feels like remembering, and you catch up pretty quickly uh, if you're so oriented to where you left off in a previous lifetime. Well, Christ did it all at once, right? You do have the birth and the baptism, then the transfiguration is the third stage, and then the fourth and the fifth stages correspond to the... um, the crucifixion and the resurrection or the ascension to heaven. But again, this is part of a metaphor or an allegory that all of us go through across many, many lifetimes. Some would say hundreds of lifetimes in order for us to accomplish as human souls what uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, seemed to be able to accomplish in a single lifetime. But of course, he was already Christed Keep in mind, Christ is a title, not a last name. I feel silly having to repeat that, but we do have to repeat that because most people don't know that Jesus the Christ, or Christ Jesus, that the Christos is a Greek word meaning one who is already enlightened, one who is soul aware. Literally, it means Messiah or Savior. the one who's going to show you the way, who's going to save you and show you what you need to do to get to this level of being fully soul-infused, fully aware of yourself as soul before you die. You know, we're not talking about waiting till you die to find out what happens on the other side, but to have that experience through study, meditation, and mindfulness while you're still in form, while you're still walking around in your earth suit. okay. So it is said that this third stage, this transfiguration or illumination, is the longest and the most difficult stage. It's the one in the middle, so it corresponds to the heart and soul of things, the middle of a three, the middle of a five, or the middle of a seven is always a very important number in esoteric philosophy. The middle is always the heart and the soul of any model. So the middle of the divine trinity is the Christ or the soul. The father aspect corresponds to the will of God. The mother aspect, or what's called by the church Holy Spirit, corresponds to the body of God, or the manifestation, but the soul in the middle, the second of the three in the middle, is the heart and the soul. It's the emotional nature as it moves into its higher turns of the spiral and becomes aware of love, not merely as an emotion of affinity and attraction, but the truth of existence as consciousness as wisdom as truth love truth in esoteric philosophy is often hyphenated so the only truth is love and love is the only truth and it corresponds to consciousness or your awareness and so it is with the middle of the five or the middle of the seven always look for in a model of five the number three Or in the model of seven, it would be the number four with three above and three below. Like the chakras, for example, um, 
the heart is the middle chakra. You have three chakras below, right? The solar plexus, the sacral, and the root. And you have three chakras above, the throat, the ajna, and the crown. So here in the model of seven, the heart and the soul corresponds to the middle. Okay? Sort of interesting, I think. And a good thing to know about the magic of the of the number three and the nature of the middle in all of this. So when we talk about the third stage of this unfoldment of consciousness or the third initiation, we're talking about the middle. We're talking about the longest and the most difficult. And the reason that's often given by teachers of the ageless wisdom for the third initiation being the longest and the most difficult is bound up in the nature of our topic today, the dweller on the threshold. The threshold I want you to think of simply as a doorway. We don't use the word very much anymore, you know. You might you might think of the custom of a bridegroom carrying his bride across the threshold ask ten people and probably two will know that that means through the doorway uh, it's just a word that's fallen out of use but that's what the threshold is the, the entrance to a building or the entrance to a room the doorway the door jam would be the threshold I'm thinking of uh, the old earthquake advice they used to give us in Southern California to stand in the doorway during an earthquake, right? Well, if you can imagine that, you can imagine the dweller on the threshold who's standing just short of moving through the doorway to the third initiation, which is the point where we dedicate ourselves as disciples to becoming soul-infused, where we essentially appropriate the ego and see the ego as our little brother or little sister um, that we care for, that um, we protect and know that its job is to protect us from physical danger, but that its role as the supreme director or uh, the one who guides you in your journey is um, has now been reduced from the primary, the ego is your primary director, your primary sense of yourself up until this third initiation. And afterwards, as you move through the threshold into the third initiation, transfiguration or illumination, and identify as a being of light, you're still in form, you're still in the world, but no longer of the world. Now, if you're listening to this class today, and if you're interested in this, especially having <laughs> had to employ the patience to wait for me to get the setup right, if you're intrigued by this topic, you are on the threshold of the third initiation, by definition. All right. If you were still in your first or second stage, um, you'd be guided by your ego, and you'd have no interest in dropping the ego. Right? You'd be off watching YouTube videos or um, television or entertaining yourself in in some other way to provide ego satisfaction, and essentially self-centered. That's that's what marks ego identification. Your you're interested primarily in protecting the separated self from danger, from harm, from death, if you will. And upon moving through the threshold, once we release this dweller aspect we're talking about today, and move through the threshold into this third stage of initiation, this illumination, You don't kill the ego, per se. This is found in Hinduism and Eastern philosophy, full ego death. In Western mysticism, it's more about um, 
appointing the ego to be the, as I say, the the little brother or little sister. It gets to come along, but it does, and it can ride shotgun. And if you're ever in real physical danger, it can be in charge of kicking in the autonomic, automatic fight-or-flight response, and it does a good job of that, faced with real danger. But the third initiation, moving through this threshold, is the point where you identify as the soul, and you become more interested in harmony, less interested in the separated self, and more interested in what can I do for others. Now, this is often portrayed as a sacrifice. But I hasten to suggest this is really not a sacrifice, except to the dweller. And that's part of the reason that we hang back when we get to this point, because we're afraid that by giving up ego identification, we're going to lose something. We're going to give up our self-interest in acquiring material goodies and buying stuff and owning stuff and possessing stuff and, you know, building a material fortune that upon death you lose. We all acknowledge you can't take it with you, but we spend our whole lives gathering it up as if we could. It does beg the question, what can we take with us upon death, which is consciousness, love, your memory, and you'd think that knowing that we would spend more time developing our consciousness and developing love in our lives since that's something you can take with you. In fact, it's the, it's the only thing that you are ultimately love and all of its many, many qualities, which you can, of course, take with you. So why wouldn't we spend our whole lives working on that, developing that? you see, so that um, we can be more, how shall I say, graceful and elegant in our need to reincarnate over and over and over and over again. Uh, the idea is that if growth and refinement and improvement is what it's all about, well, then let's get it on. Let's yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay, let's giddy-up, let's, let's get her done, right? So this is a commitment, and the whole topic of the dweller on the threshold is about the hesitation that we make. And it could be for years, and it could be for decades, and it could be for lifetimes that we play out this challenge of moving into the third initiation and hold on almost like one foot through the door, but the other foot still back in the old room, right? And we're attracted to moving through the threshold. We want to come into this room, this stage of our lives that has much more love and light and contentment and peace and even bliss and ecstasy in it, but the ego is afraid to let go, and so we hold on. And that's essentially the dweller on the threshold, the part of us that reaches the stage in our spiritual development where we're just about to let go of the last of what the ego wants, which is to celebrate the separative self regardless of consequences to others. And... Again, it's not a sacrifice, really, to move forward to a concern about the larger sense of self, which is not separated, and which has family and community, and indeed, in, in time, as you move through the threshold, you understand your community, indeed, your family, is the world. That love thy neighbor doesn't end two or three blocks down the street, but everybody on the planet, everybody you can get near any anyway, anybody you can influence. And in this age of 
uh, information of computers of the internet and Google uh, that's pretty much the world right so that's your family the world that means if somebody in your family is hungry you have a problem now on this side of the threshold the ego doesn't much care as long as there's food in the ego's pantry and food in the ego's refrigerator the ego may be very highly evolved in standing at the threshold and saying isn't that isn't that too bad you know but Christ said the poor will always be with you he didn't say the hungry would always be with you though right uh, and yet we have extreme poverty with roughly 30,000 people every day dying of starvation, most of them children, and most of the rest women, right? Um, this is inexcusable, and I suppose we still have some 19th century Malthusians out there that are still believing that starvation is the result of there not being enough food and it's sort of like the foxes and the rabbits that you may have learned about in school a kind of a ecological supply and demand where if there is more rabbits then uh, more foxes will grow to eat the rabbits and then there's fewer rabbits and fewer foxes as a result and you find this state of equilibrium global hunger does not work that way hunger and starvation does not reduce the population it actually promotes the population because human beings can reason and when they look around it's very important and when we look around and see that four out of five of our children are dying before the age of five or six most of them die in the first 12 months of life you have more children so that one or two may live to be adults and be able to take care of you in your old age this is what passes for social security in the third world or if the republicans ever had their way they'd get rid of all of this stuff right and uh, so get it straight it's not that overpopulation causes hunger it's just the opposite you may even want to write this down it's so profound overpopulation does not cause hunger there is enough food in this world to feed everybody here and then some overpopulation does not cause hunger hunger causes overpopulation people start having more and more children so the number of children that die of starvation begins to skyrocket again globally it's about 30,000 a day and it's inexcusable when you consider how painful that is and the suffering that's involved and the fear that people go through knowing they're dying even little ch children knowing and that that you know, we have trillions of dollars for war, but very little money uh, to, to the governments are raising to feed and, and clothe and, and shelter the homeless shows that the vast majority of us are still in the first or second stage. Uh, the first stage is basically survival. That's birth. It's just basically survival. Baptism is you begin to care emotionally. You fall in love. You love your parents. You have children. You love the kids. You have a few friends, but it doesn't go very far. Again, it's this third initiation, this third stage, this so-called transfiguration or illumination, where we get hung up and we become the dweller on the threshold, the person that just doesn't want to cross through and accept our identities as members of the one life we hold on instead to keep one foot back like i'm not going all the way I, I like what's up ahead i'm attracted to all this love and this glory and the the music of the celestial spheres and the the bliss and the contentment i i, I feel the pull but 
ego's pulling me back, right? And so here I am, one foot on either side of the threshold. I just don't want to give up my selfishness. Bottom line, I really don't want to give up my fear, all right? And this is the bottom line with the dweller. The baffling paradox that we carry our fear with us. We want fear. We have a absolutely false belief system, virtually every human being on this earth, okay, that fear will make us safe. And that if we only remain afraid or are easily frightened, that that will keep us safe. Okay. Now, in a simple sense, in the laws of the jungle, you can make an argument that that's true. Except humans, by all accounts, have been here two and a half, three, maybe three and a half million years. And so we have evolved in that time, continually changing. You see, the flu evolves every year, disease evolves, viruses evolve. Uh, rats are now immune to rat poison. They're evolving. You can <laughs> evolution is not this. Well, I mean, it is this huge, long, drawn-out process. But you can see, you can see it happening. Uh, if you ever bred fruit flies in high school biology, you can see evolution at work. Um, there's just no question that evolution is real, and. Even the born-agains, I think, are starting to come around and say, well, yeah, okay, all right, we accept, but uh, God made evolution. Well, fine, fine, have it your way, uh, however you want to see it. Uh, evolution, however, goes beyond Darwin's belief of simply the physical species evolving. We're talking here today about evolution of consciousness, evolution of awareness evolution of understanding, the evolution or development of your ability to move to a more elevated point of view, to perceive broader horizons and get the ever bigger picture. This is one of the primary benefits of the growth of consciousness, the unfolding, if you will, or development of consciousness is that you not only know more, you can perceive the the holistic nature of what you know more completely. You see a bigger picture. You The classic model is you elevate, you rise, like climbing the mountain, and the higher up the mountain you go through these stages of evolution, spiritual evolution, the higher up the mountain you go, the more elevated your perspective, the farther you can see in all directions. And the easier it is to understand the big picture. Well, you begin to understand that you are not the separated being that you always feared that you were. And you realize that in this three million years of evolution, you have developed a fight-or-flight autonomic response that will kick in with adrenaline and all these other neurotransmitter chemicals automatically flooding your system to allow you to either fight or run. And that will automatically, or again, autonomically, handle any real danger. Right. So the idea that we have to carry our fear with us to protect us from danger is false. And yet, if you study the subject, if you look at yourself or even observe other people, you will see this popular bias, wrong, incorrect, but popular nonetheless, that says the best way to be safe is to be sensitive to fear, to be easily frightened. And if instead I allow myself to feel safe, well, then I'd be putting myself into danger. 
you see, because the world's way too dangerous for me to feel safe. And if I felt safe, I'd be increasing the danger by feeling safe. So the best way to be safe is to feel as if I'm always in danger. Now, if that sounds backwards, it's because it is backwards. It's absolutely uh, upside down, inside out, and backwards. That I'm going to protect myself and feel safe by carrying fear because if I allowed myself to feel safe, I'd be in too much danger. Right? That ought to make you giggle. That ought to make you laugh out loud to realize how silly it is, and yet we've all done it. Right? And continue to do it. Well, that's the basic, that's the primary dilemma of the dweller. Because for the dweller on the threshold to move through the threshold into transfiguration, illumination, this third stage, to be the soul-infused ego or the soul-infused persona in the world but not of it, the ego has to drop its fear. Or the higher self, so to speak, has to step forward with the cooperation, I'll say, of the ego. The ego has to know its place. It has to be willing to say, okay, higher self, you drive, I'll move over and I'll sit shotgun, but I'm not driving anymore because they keep heading in the direction of fear and scary stuff and we're not making much progress in our unfolding of consciousness, in our development of the higher self. At some point, <laughs> ego's got to move over, sit shotgun, and higher self moves into the driver's seat and says, don't worry, little buddy, I'll take care of it. So that's what we're facing. And if you feel stalled out in your personal growth, if you feel like you don't know what else to do, consider this old Rosicrucian model of the dweller on the threshold and understand that the dweller ultimately, bottom line, you can say it any time you want, the dweller loves his fear. And he will dwell on the threshold for his right to be afraid which also means to be confused, because fear is really about what you don't understand, right? I mean, the ego, the, the fight or flight, is supposed to be an autonomic response to deal with real, clear, and present danger, the danger that's obvious and right in front of us. However, short of driving a car on the freeway we're just not in that much danger so the vast majority of what we experience is fear and you've heard me say this repeatedly I don't think I could repeat it too much the vast majority of what we experience is fear or stress or anxiety or nervousness or worry or doubt is simply confusion it's what we don't know it's what we don't understand Sometimes, because we don't want to know, we'd rather be afraid, like, give up my fear. I don't want to give up my fear. And yet, you know what it reminds me of is when I was a little boy, I grew up in Michigan, just a few blocks from the lake. And there were also many little smaller lakes besides Lake Michigan, you know, separating us from Chicago and Milwaukee on the other side, a lot of little lakes. And so my parents decided it would be a pretty good idea, a very good idea, if I started taking swimming lessons at a young age. So by the time I was five, I was going to the uh, Y uh, YMCA, YWCA, I don't remember, the Y downtown to uh, take swimming lessons, right? And I learned fast enough, I guess, but when it came to moving down to the deep end of the pool, I liked the shallow end because 
if my swimming didn't go well, I could just stand up. Well, down in the deep end, of course, you can't do that. So I would stay by the side of the pool and hold on to that railing, that that little gutter where the water spills, right? I would hold on to the edge of that. Well, increasingly, my friends were getting better and better at swimming, and they'd be out in the center of the deep end. In fact, some of them were jumping off the diving board now doing cannonballs and diving to the bottom and having a great time. And I'm still holding on to the edge of the swimming pool. And I'm approximating what they're doing. I'm splashing around, and I'm trying to have a good time, and I might swim a foot or two away from the railing, but then I hurry back and hold on. That's the dweller. It wants to hold on to its fear. It wants to hold on to the ego. It wants to be the ego. It wants to be the separated self. It is in love with the familiar, even though it's painful. Psychologists talk about our comfort zone. It's a misnomer. It's not that we're comfortable. It's that we're familiar with our pain. We're familiar with our fear. Don't take my misery away. If you took my suffering and my fear away, I might be happier, but it'd be unfamiliar. And again, we've got it backwards. It's like, well, because it's unfamiliar, it would be scary. Yeah, but what we're saying is to let go of the fear. So how could it be scary? If you let go of the fear, I'd be afraid, (laughs) is the objection of the dweller. If if I couldn't be afraid, I'd be in real danger. That's the dilemma of the dweller on the threshold. Okay. So ultimately what you want to do if as I say, everybody listening to this program is there, or you wouldn't have any interest in this kind of stuff at all. And you got one foot through and you want to step in, then work on becoming absolutely fearless. And again, we're not talking about fearless in terms of facing down a grizzly bear in Alaska, right? Uh, or or a rabid dog or putting yourself in, in harm's way in a war or something and being fearless. We're talking about being willing to face what you do not understand about you. All right? That's the dilemma of the dweller on the threshold. Are you willing to understand yourself? Are you willing to explore as completely as possible everything about you as a unique individual that you still don't understand? Because if you're not, then you're the dweller. Nothing to be ashamed of. It's just a reality. If you're tired, however, of the heartache and the pain and being surrounded by similar people that are in constant pain and fear and suffering and you want to move to, to, again, this through the threshold to this third initiation, this transfiguration, to the soul-infused personality, the soul-infused persona. You'll still be in a body. You'll still be on the earth, right? It's like that Sufi saying, you'll be in the world but no longer of the world when you stop being afraid. Where's a good place to begin? How about my fear of what other people think about me? How can you be soul-identified if you carry with you a fear of what other people will think? How do I look in this outfit? Well, what might they say if I don't do this and do this and that? Everybody will talk. See, if you have that concern, there is no spiritual growth. You can't step through because the self you're afraid of being injured doesn't really exist. So you're going to hold on to that sense of self 
that separated self, that by all appearances you are if you look in a mirror and if you believe physical reality is all there is to the world. But, you know, you can close your eyes and the world goes away, and yet you're still in it. You can fall asleep and dream that you're in an entirely different place and yet you're still in the world. You can develop your consciousness to be aware of higher realms and your existence of self as love of a much more refined quality than the romantic love that we know, a quality of compassion and forgiveness that's difficult to even describe unless and until you begin to experience it and, and, and get a taste of it. But we have to let go of the fear. Again, we're talking this week about Christian mysticism. You might want to just consider, reflect on how much of what Christ taught was about be not afraid and how love casts out fear. Right? Again, not romantic love, but love as consciousness or awareness cannot coexist where there is fear. So hold on to your fear, no room for love. Right? Hold on to what you do not understand, no room for what you do understand, what you could understand. Well, let's go to the panel here of questions, and good, we have the text questions. I'm going to read those, and then we'll see if there's anybody on the phone that wants to come on. First of all, we have Carol in uh, La Habra looking at these messages, but these are from before. Phil in Canoga Park, hello, Phil. He says, uh, still not working. He says, still not working. All right. Carl says, I'm on the phone. The net is still doing the same thing, connecting, reconnecting. So Carol had to go to the phone. I guess maybe everybody that's listening with me is only on the phone from the look of things. Well, at least we have, uh, maybe I'm speaking too soon. I'm hopeful that, <laughs> that we'll also have the recording. And that will be posted later today, uh, probably usually five to ten minutes after we finish the uh, the class, which uh, will be up on the uh, same website that you normally go to, the link from the newsletter or from the archives at the Ageless Wisdom. That should still work. And then, of course, we'll have a podcast going on on Tuesday. As I do understand the new system also, we're going to have a chat room. Some of you have asked for this in the past, and apparently we don't have that up and running this week. And that will allow you on the side to go into the chat room and type messages back and forth. And uh, that will be cool. All right. We do have some callers. If you want me to uh, unmute you, I don't see any hands raised at this point. But all you have to do is press star 2 on your telephone touchpad if you want to raise your hand. Let's just do our guided imagery process for the day. Get in a nice, comfortable position. And close your eyes and relax. Take a nice, slow, deep breath and... Fill your lungs as you inhale, and as you exhale, create a sense of letting go feeling, like a sigh of relief. And do that two or three times, slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, just as slowly, feel the letting go in your body. Almost as if you're softening or melting. You want to sit straight up, erect, but not rigid. Think of yourself as balanced and aligned and centered. And like butter on a warm day, imagine that you're softening. from the outside of your body, from the skin to the muscles and the tendon and the ligament and connective tissue to the organs in your rib cage, 
to the skeleton in the center of your body, to the marrow in the center of your bones. Feel the letting go. Feel very safe and relaxed. You see, the practice of meditation, of even getting into a place where your body is still and your emotions are calm and your mind is quiet and steady, is a parallel to our lesson today, releasing the dweller on the threshold and moving through the threshold into the third initiation as soul-infused persona, to give up the separative self. To release by the very act of letting go in meditation, feel in your body muscles letting go. And consider that what you're releasing is your fear. That's what these tight muscles were all about. Tension and stress, nervousness and anxiety. Doubt and apprehension, let it go. As if there were no doubt, no nervousness, and nothing to fear. What if what if that were true? Just how safe, how relaxed could you feel? And continue. By this time, your breathing should be rather natural. Allow your breathing to just find its own rhythm and cadence. But continue to feel the softening feeling. Muscles relaxing and unwinding, feel the letting go. As if you were very safe. As if you were infinite and eternal. As if you existed everywhere equally present and could not be harmed in any way at all. No death, no suffering, no lasting injury at all. Imagine if you knew that you were that safe. How relaxed could you be? And you see, it's like turning up a volume control on the radio. It's like a dimmer on a lamp that you turn to make the lamp brighter. What you're actually doing when you increase the volume on a radio or amplifier or when you turn up the light with a dimmer, you're reducing your resistance and letting more energy through. And so the amplifier plays the sound louder and the light bulb receiving more electricity is now brighter than before you turn up the dial, you're actually turning down the resistance to the flow of energy. And so in the same way, in these meditation exercises, as you let go of fear, as you release your resistance to life, you drop your pain. You actually release confusion. You can put down the emotional baggage full of regret, resentment, and vengeance. All of the old pain that you've been carrying forward every day, bringing into the presence of your life from the past. 
as if there were some value in dragging all of this pain and suffering around with you. Instead, imagine letting it go. Consider that forgiving people that have wronged you and even forgiving yourself for buying into a sense of guilt and blame, that all that forgiveness, forgiving the perpetrator, the abuser, forgiving you for your own confusion, that forgiving, forgiving, is simply letting go. That when you forgive another, or yourself for that matter, you're letting go of the pain and the hurt. You don't have to forget. You don't have to let go of a understanding. Understanding is the pain redeemed. Bring the understanding. Bring the love and the light, the insight and the awareness with you. But know that you'll do that effortlessly because understanding like love and peace is everywhere equally present. So you don't have to hold on to it or carry it with you. The only thing you need to carry is pain and you don't need to do that. So let it go. And love and light will be with you always. I remind myself of the the nature of a fish in water is to always be where the water is. So the fish doesn't have to bring water with it to make sure its destination will be wet. The fish has no destination that is not wet, and you have no place to go that is not filled with love and light if you would but let go of the pain and suffering. Put your burden down. Forgive. Drop it. You won't have to forget, but you don't need to carry the memory. It's now part of you. And as you let go of the last of your fear... the last of your sense that you are the separated individual in a world of separated forms and feel a part of the one life connected to all things, a human family, indeed part of the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the mineral kingdom as well, inextricably linked all the one life let everything else go and imagine yourself literally physically moving through the threshold through the doorway no longer the dweller and imagine yourself in the words of the old Rosicrucians, standing before the angel of the presence, and aware of yourself as pure love, in form, but also above and free of form. And your primary responsibility now is to give that love, not to get it. To emanate or radiate as surely as a light bulb radiates or emanates light and warmth. Effortlessly by the very nature of what you are as a soul incarnate. You emanate your love and need nothing in return, for you are that love. The dweller hangs back, needing love in return, often needing love to initiate the giving, 
like I'll love them when they love me. To go through the threshold and to embrace, to face, to be in the presence of your higher self, the so-called angel of the presence. All you have to do is let go completely of your fear, of your muscular tension, of your belief that you are alienated and isolated and separated by your form nature. And live in a world of you or me, us or them, winners or losers, right or wrong. And instead, it's just us. Nobody here called them, just us. Nobody loses in order for others to win, not in the bigger game. It's all a process of unfoldment, of ascension, of improvement or development in varying degrees at varying rates there's no need and frankly no means of judging yourself or comparing yourself to others for that very sense of self as separate and distinct is melting away and replaced by a higher sense of self a capital S self that is harmonious that embraces humanity as its family and knows that it is, in fact, separated from no thing, separated from nothing, and a part of all things as surely as you eat food from the plant kingdom, drink water and breathe air from the mineral kingdom, and exchange it back again. As surely as every molecule of oxygen that you breathe has existed from the beginning of time and been inhaled by millions of individuals, that same molecule of oxygen, the same nutrients that you eat have been rocks and trees and animals and dirt again before being drawn up into a carrot that you scrub and slice and eat or any other food in spite of the appearances of separation and the distinctions of chemistry at a cellular and molecular level there is but the one life Know it by releasing your fear and stepping into a desire to know yourself intimately through harmony toward unity. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a nice, slow, deep breath and open your eyes, wide awake and alert, feeling rested and refreshed, with a full memory and a really deep understanding of what we've talked about today and your desire to accelerate improvement. To accelerate unfoldment and development, to increase and enhance your refinement, that you might be of ever greater service to others and the one life. 
So take a nice, slow, deep breath. Fill your lungs. Hold for just a moment, and now exhale. And open your eyes, wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, and back to the room feeling just fine. Well, that's all the time we have for today, so I'm going to let you guys go. Sorry about the snafu, and um, I'm glad you were able to come to the telephones and listen live. And since the player didn't work for anybody, I think that's just because I messed it up in the beginning there. But I'm going to practice a lot this week and make sure that I understand which system to use and make sure we're good with this new system, get all the features down. And, again, the podcasts are always available. You can subscribe for free at the iTunes store, Podcast Alley, or Digital Podcast, most any podcast directory. And you can also listen on the archives. That will be up in about five minutes, ten minutes, at theagelesswisdom.com. Just click on the home page to go inside, and then web teleconferences to access the archive. That's the w's.theagelesswisdom.com. Okay? And remember to check out Focused Passion, too, for our premium audio programs, Studio Quality, Steve and I together compelling conversations and guided meditations finding yourself in paradise series a premium audio program for just 99 cents a week but the accounts are free and the first six programs are all free so go to focusedpassion.com remember the ed focusedpassion.com be gentle of life and take care of each other this is michael benner from maui hawaii aloha <laughs> 